if you were with us on Wednesday night, you heard a lot about a professor down in Waco, Texas named Alan Jacobs, who has a lot to say about what it means how to think. But in a recent essay he wrote, he explained that he was out to boycott one particular newspaper of record. Not because he wanted to bury his head in the sands. He's an academic. He's not somebody that sort of just avoids certain thoughts. It's not because he's unfamiliar with this paper of record. It's that he's too familiar with it. And in his estimation, there is an idea from which all of the rest of their reporting comes from, an idea that he takes issue with. And so in this essay about why he no longer reads this particular newspaper, he said this, For the reporters on the Times, those who tell me that I am my own are on the side of the angels, while those who cast doubt on that proposition are to be cast into outer darkness where there is wailing and gnashing of teeth. That quote kind of goes by fast, and you kind of wonder, that's sort of a statement that maybe only an academic could love. But actually, there's something to it that has great relevance to our condition, whether you read that paper or if you don't. And that is this. For a newspaper who claims to stay out of anything related to a religious advocacy, that statement, I am my own, is as close to a religious statement as you might ever imagine. Because it's a belief. You can't prove one way or the other whether or not you are your own. And the thing is, everybody in this room and everybody outside of this room lands on that question in some form or fashion, whether we're aware of it or not. You are either your own or you are not your own. That is the question, Hamlet. Because how you answer that question speaks to every single thing else that you think or feel or do. Are you your own or are you not? It's a belief. And it has all of the markings and trappings of a religious belief because you can't prove it. We are in a series listening to the prophet Isaiah. And today we're going to listen to a passage from Isaiah that is known according to scholarly literature as almost something like a song. In fact, it's one of several songs. It's a song of someone styled as the servant. And this song, coming from whoever this servant is, is out to offer an answer, if you will, to the question, am I my own? And I will spoil it for you. His answer to that question is a resounding, no, you are not your own. And in this song, by the time we're done, you will hear four reasons why you are not your own. And it has everything else to do with God. And those four answers come down in these four ways. You are not your own because one, of what God has sent to you. Two, because of what God has done for you. Three, because of what God would wish to do through you. And four, because of the way God thinks of you. What he sent to you, what he does for you, what he would do through you, and how he thinks of you. I can't prove to you whether you are not your own, but everybody in this room and outside of this room has to decide it. 
Let's see what Isaiah has to say. If you're able to stand, we're in chapter 49. Isaiah 49, starting in verse 1. Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother. He named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow in his quiver. He hid me away, and he said to me, You are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. But I said, I've labored in vain. I've spent my strength for nothing in vanity. Yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. And now the Lord says, He who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him, for I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. He says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and His Holy One, to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers, kings shall see and arise, Princes and they shall see, shall prostrate themselves because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. Thus says the Lord, in a time of favor I've answered you. In a day of salvation I have helped you. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people to establish the land, to apportion the desolate heritages, saying to the prisoners, come out to those who are in darkness, appear. They shall feed along the ways. On all bare heights shall be their pasture. They shall not hunger or thirst. Neither scorching wind nor sun shall strike them. For he who has pity on them will lead them. And by springs of water will guide them. And I will make my mountains, all my mountains a road. And my highways shall be raised up. Behold, these shall come from afar. And behold, these from the north and from the west. And these from the land of Syene. Sing for joy, O heavens, and exult, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing. For the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on his afflicted. But Zion said, The Lord has forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. Can a woman forget her nursing child? That she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. This is the melodious song of the Lord. You may be seated. So there was a show back in the 1950s called uh, To Tell the Truth. Remember this one, Tom? Yeah, okay, right? <laughs> yeah, uh, celebrity panel would come out, like four people. And then these three challengers would come out, and uh, the celebrity panel would be told that they're going to meet someone who has either this distinctive distinction about their experience or about their identity. And uh, three people would pretend, or two of them would pretend to be the person, one of them would actually be the person. And so the celebrity panel would ask these three people a set of several questions to try to flesh out or to tease out which one is telling the truth. And so the celebrity panel would ask their questions, and after about 10 minutes, they would stop, and then each one of them would uh, ask themselves, who is it? And then they would, they would guess which one of those three was the real person, and then finally the 
um, the host of the show would say, will the real John Doe please stand up, right? And everybody would go, oh, I knew it, or oh, I wish I knew it. <laughs> when you come to the book of Isaiah and you hear the word the servant, there comes a point at which you will ask yourself, will the real servant please stand up? Because last week we're in chapter 42, and you hear Isaiah speak of the servant, and that servant whose name is Israel is known as blind, deaf, and plundered, and suffering judgment. That's chapter 42. In chapter 49 this week, this servant whose name is Israel comes off as one who is essentially the apple in God's eye. And so we're listening to chapter 42, and we're listening to chapter 49, and we're going, will the real servant please stand up? Who's the servant? The historical context is going to help, but the theological context is going to be key. Bear with me on each one of these things and each point I make. I promise it will service the overall question we're trying to answer of, am I my own? When it comes to the historical context, you might remember what I alluded to last week about what happens in Isaiah 39. King Hezekiah, he's the king of the southern nation of Judah, and he allows envoys from Babylon to walk in and see all of their resources and see all of their strength and their might because Hezekiah thinks, if I can just make an alliance with this power, we Judahites will be preserved. Well, in time, that which they had let into the hen house ends up coming to kill all the hens. And exile Israel to Babylon. The one who was going to be their protector ends up becoming their tyrant. And therefore Israel is carted off into exile. Around 586 BC, if you're checking. That's in chapter 42. In chapter 49, a lot has happened. And now we're talking about Israel returning from exile. It's been in exile for a good long time. And now... This song from this servant, whoever that servant might be, is going to usher Israel back from exile, back into the land. And this servant is going to come to its aid, and therefore the historical context is out to set us up for what amounts to a profile of the servant. Who is this servant? It's named Israel. But when you hear about the profile, you wonder, which Israel? This servant it says, is one who's been set apart from birth. An intimate relationship with God in ways that other people have not. Secondly, he has a mouth like a sword, meaning that this servant is going to speak penetratingly and clearly and incisively and maybe often to the chagrin of those who hear. This servant is compared to a polished arrow, which is a metaphor for being that which is very effective in its work. A polished arrow would always fly straight and true and make its mark. And this servant, it would said, is one in whom God would be glorified. That God would be seen in some sort of very vivid and powerful way in what this one would do and would say and would act. And therefore, this servant, if you're going to ask yourself, who is it referring to? You got to say, or you got to conjecture at least, that it's not talking about the nation of Israel. Because it's the nation of Israel that's afflicted. I don't care how good a cardiologist you might be, you will never do heart surgery on yourself. You can't. Israel as a nation is afflicted. That's why it was in exile. 
So whoever this servant is, it's not a national Israel. It's somebody else. It can't free itself. It's in prison. And that's why when you listen to to scholarly research into the book of Isaiah, rabbinical scholars across the ages are pulling their hair out going, who is the servant? Because sometimes the servant is in a singular form. Sometimes it's in a plural form. Sometimes it relates to Israel as a particular nation. And then here, it's like, who is the servant? Which is why then, maybe you could understand that in the Jews of Jesus' day, when they begin to consider who he was in broad relief, you can understand why they might think, wait a minute, this sounds familiar. Something in him is hearkening back to what Isaiah spoke of in chapter 49. Because it's this Jesus who speaks of the Lord as his own father. And that he only does that which he hears his father say. And Jesus is the one who ends up speaking both severely and tenderly, depending on who he's talking to at any given moment. It sounds like a mouth like a sword. And it's Jesus, when we talk about being like a polished arrow, that what he does, he accomplishes. And he works with might and he works with power. Jesus would therefore seem to be fitting a profile. And especially when it comes down to speaking of the servant in whom God would be glorified. You heard the New Testament reading from the fourth chapter of the book of Hebrews, but in the first chapter of the book of Hebrews, you hear that author say this, long ago at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he's spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, and through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. We are always at risk of oversimplifying what we find in Scripture. We are always at risk of projecting upon certain Old Testament texts what we want them to hear. But goodness gracious, friends, when you just listen to the profile of whoever this servant is that the servant is speaking of, it sure sounds, if it quacks like a duck, it sure sounds like who Jesus is. That the connections between what we hear from the servant and who we understand who Jesus is, it sure sounds like if we're asking who the real servant is, it sounds a lot like the one who is the anointed one, Jesus. Now, why? Okay, so there's your little rapid-fire historical theological insight. Why should you care? Because it matters about the question, am I my own? Because if you think you or you are your own, then you also have to believe that you are on your own. You are on your own to make life work. You are on your own to make a series of choices, taking in full consideration of all the various permutations and variables that might be in place in any given moment, and you've got to do well because it's on you to find your happiness. That's what you have to believe and operate on if you believe that you are your own. And if you think that, And you might hold to that. Goodness gracious. Uh, We're in Asheville, right? I mean, you can tell if somebody believes that they're their own. Just look at their bumper stickers. There's all sorts of windows into a human soul, depending on what you wear on the back of your car. And you can tell. And that's not a criticism. It's actually just an indication. But if you want to pan out a little bit here and just listen to the statistics that we're hearing, 
If the statistics are even half true about how many of us are demoralized and desensitized and depressed, then maybe the premise of operating that you are your own, maybe there's a hole in that. It's not a proof that you're not your own. But in terms of an operating premise upon which to build your life, it has a certain defect to it. There's a movie I've shown you a clip before from, it's called, from a movie called Calvary. And it's about a Catholic priest in Ireland who, before he entered the priesthood, was married and had a child. And um, his wife has died, and his daughter has grown. And his daughter, at one point, has tried to take her own life. And in this scene, which is so rich and so hard and yet so full of irony, his daughter has come to him while he's holding confessional to sift through some of her thinking behind her failed attempt at taking her own life. And I apologize for the Irish dialect. You'll have to catch up. But here in this moment, you will hear a father listening to his daughter's confession, if you will, and trying to help her think through what she was thinking through at a time of ultimate subjectivity. Listen. There's a Japanese writer committed suicide. He wrote out a list beforehand of all the famous suicides throughout history. He included Christ. Sounds like a smart ass. In the Middle Ages, they just said I was possessed by demons. Maybe you were. Maybe they were near the mark back then. Do you think what happens is unimportant? Insignificant in the great scheme of things to provoke such a reaction. But what makes What may mean nothing to you may be very important to me. You'd never say it was unimportant. You'd just say the choices you make when you're 30 are not the same choices you make when you're 60. That's irrelevant. Every moment of living has its own logic, its own meaning. Maybe so. Maybe you're right there. I'll have to think about that. tired old argument, I suppose. But what about those you leave behind? I belong to myself, not to anybody else. True. False. They tell me it was an immortal sin I spoke. But I've suffered eternal damnation, Father. God is great. The limits of his mercy have not been set. To go where she tried to go, she had to believe that she was her own. And her father, her father, true, false. The reason that we believe we are not your own is because we are so in deep need of mercy that Israel was sent unto them, this servant that came in a way that only they 
in every way that they needed and nothing that they could do, that Jesus comes to us at all. Whether you believe in him being divine or not, if you just listen to his words, you have to reckon with the idea that he believes that there is something that we need that we can't provide ourselves. And so if you want an answer to the question, are you your own? You just look at yourself and discover you can't be your own. And the extent of his mercy is an indication that, in fact, we do not belong to ourselves because we're not good enough to belong to ourselves. That's not the only reason, though, why you're not your own. It's not only what God has sent to you. It's also what God has done for you. And what he's done for you here in the form of a song, it's, it's, it's a song of a servant. It's really a duet. There are two figures singing in the song. There is the servant himself, and then there is the Lord. And it is the Lord who speaks back unto the servant in verses 9 and 10 when it says this. When the Lord says this. Come out to those who are in darkness. Appear. They shall feed along the ways, and all the bare heights shall be their pasture. They shall not hunger or thirst. Neither scorching wind nor sun shall strike them. For he who has pity on them will lead them, and by springs of water will guide them. There is something in the historical context in which we're imagining Israel returning from exile, having been out of the land for over a hundred years, and they're asking themselves, is it safe? Can I get back? Can I really start over? Can I really go home again? In John chapter 4, when Jesus encounters a woman at a well, and that woman has lived a life of a serial monogamy, having been through several marriages and is about to give up on marriage altogether, Jesus asks for, for a drink of water. And at some point he explains that he himself has a living water, a water that if those who drink of it will never thirst again. And therefore what he is speaking of is something which quenches a thirst like nothing have. Nothing can, and therefore his water is talking about not a physical water, but something deeper, attending to a deeper need. And that need you hear, even in the woman's request, to give me this water, she says. She's in her own spiritual exile. She's in her own existential exile, and she believes that whatever he's offering her, that's what she wants. She can't even put her finger on what it is. She just knows if that's the case, I want that. Whatever she wants is what points to this deeper need. Whatever yours and my quest for meaning and acceptance and admiration and feeling cherished is, that's what points to this deeper need. Whatever speaks of our frustrations and our anxieties and our disappointments, that speaks to the deeper need. Look, if you don't believe that Jesus is divine for a moment, fine, but at least you have to listen to his words and realize that what he believes he has on offer, what he believes has on offer is what we most desperately need. And it will take him being divine to be able to provide it. What he's out to offer us, though, depends on something more than just his willingness to offer it. It depends on what he has to do for us. And you hear that hinted at in what the servant speaks of there in verse 5 and verse 8. Listen to it again. And now the Lord says, He who formed me from the servant from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, that Israel might be gathered on him. In a time of favor, I've answered you. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people to establish the land and to apportion the desolate heritages. The work of that servant in Isaiah's day is to do one thing, to restore Israel back to God, to reunite them. They have been estranged. 
And whereas we heard last week, Israel might have thought that the reason Israel goes into exile is because God had forgotten them or God had neglected them, Isaiah is here to tell them, no, you are allowed to go into exile that you might be humbled, that you might repent. And it's a servant who's come to say, I am here to usher in this world in which you might be reconciled. Friends and welcome guests, what you hear in miniature there in Isaiah at a national level is what we know of entirely in who Jesus is. He is out to reconcile. He is out to bring our hand in hand with the God of all things. He is out to unite us to himself and for us to walk in love and to know and speak with another stillness of heart that we might speak with loud praise that he's God. That's his work. That's why he's an even greater servant than whoever this servant is in Isaiah. And you therefore must ask yourself this question, why does that matter? I circle back to our original question. Are you your own? If you are your own, then you're going to have to come up with some solution on your own to know what to do with all your regret and guilt and failure. For the things that keep you up at night or that make you walrus turn in the bed because you just are plagued by that gnawing thing that you can't fix, for that little undercurrent of wonderment Am I enough? You're going to have to find some other solution to that. You're going to have to push it down or repress it. You have to medicate it. Or worse, you're going to have to enter into this lifelong battle to compensate for it in some sort of unending path of penance. You'll have to do that if you are your own. If, however, you would believe that you are not your own and that you were bought with a price, then in your inevitable tangle with regret and guilt and failure, it, it will just be part of your experience, but it will not be the end of the story, and it certainly will not end without hearing also that there is grace, forgiveness, and rescue. That's why we call it good news. Because up against all of our guilt and regret and failure, if you believe you're our own, then it's on you to fix that. But if you are not your own and bought with a price, then it's on him. And that's what quiets us in our deepest recesses, and that's also what allows us then to speak with loudest praise. You're not your own because of what he's done, what he sent to you. You're not alone because of what he's done for you, but you're also not alone because of what he wishes to do through you. God sings back in what is perhaps the most curious verse in all the text. He says in verse, what is it? Verse 6, it's this weird thing where where God says, um, this mission I'm giving you, servant, you know what? Go big or go home. Um, It's not even big enough for you to just focus on Israel. He says in verse 6, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. In other words, look, it's a good thing that this servant would come and restore the people of God unto God himself, but I am not stopping there. That what I will do for this people through this servant will be a testimony to the whole world about what I am able to do and the way I'm able to act in mercy and in grace. When the Apostle Paul hears this passage and then writes of it and quotes it in his letter to the church at Corinth, he will say, that what Isaiah is speaking of there is Jesus working on behalf of the whole world. 
that he has come to be a light unto all nations, whether you're a Jew or a Gentile. He's there for the whole lot of it. But Paul will also say there in 2 Corinthians 6, that those who are in him who have been thusly reconciled by the God of the universe through Christ of the Son, he will say in 2 Corinthians 6, verse 1, working together with him, then we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in a favorable time, I've listened to you, and in a day of salvation, I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Paul believes that he himself and any who have been reconciled to God, they will do a similar work. They will be about the work of restoration as Jesus has been about the work of restoration. Jesus himself said, a servant is not greater than his master. And therefore, a servant will walk in the way of a master, including being involved and being a light to all nations. Okay, I'm about to do something dangerous. I'm about to show you a clip that has probably blown up your feed all week this week. But I don't know of a more poignant demonstration of being a light to the nations than what happened in Dallas on Tuesday. If you know that story, you an off-duty police cop, police officer about a year ago, walked into what she thought was her own apartment and saw a man there because it was his apartment eating ice cream, and she shot him to death. And in part of the testimony that explained to her character, she spoke of being a racist. And the injustice that followed the whole trial was something to be noted. But what happened on Tuesday, after the woman who had killed Botham Jean was convicted to 10 years in prison, this dead man's brother said this to this woman who had taken his brother's life. to say twice or for the hundredth time what you've or how much you've taken from us. I think you know that. But I just I hope you go to God with all what all the guilt all the things the bad things you may have done in the past each and every one of us may have done something that we're not supposed to do if you truly are sorry I know I can speak for myself I I forgive you and I know if you go to God and ask him, he will forgive you. And I don't think anyone could say it. Again, I'm speaking for myself, not even bad for my family. But I love you just like anyone else. And I'm not going to say I hope you rot and die just like my brother did, but I see I I personally want the best for you. And I, I wasn't gonna ever say this in front of my family or anyone, but I don't even want you to go to jail. I want the best for you. Because I know that's what, that's exactly what both of them would want you to do.
And the best would be give your life to Christ. I'm not going to say anything else. I think giving your life to Christ would be the best thing that both of them would want you to do. Again, I love you as a person. And I don't wish anything bad on you. I don't know if this is possible, but can can I give her a hug, please? Please? Yes. that was on your feed this week, then you probably saw two very different kinds of responses. One was astonishment at that show of forgiveness. And the other was anger for fear that that demonstration of forgiveness would become a pretext for ignoring racism and injustice. His mother was right in her lament of the racism that might have fueled that murder. His mother was right to lament the forms of injustice that might have even plagued the investigation. I don't show it to you in the slightest reason for us to ignore the racism that gave rise to the murder. I actually demonstrated, or I actually put it before yours in my face, because here's the thing about seeking justice. It's really easy to let a search for justice become a quest for vengeance. And perhaps the only thing that would restrain you and me from going into the ditch and seeking vengeance instead of justice is first of all to be humbled by our collective need of mercy and a mercy that shows that you and I have been forgiven. And what story can hold that together than the one that Brant Jean just shared with her? God forbid any of us are in that circumstance. But perhaps the necessary foundation for us to ever consider the racism that is alive and well wherever we find ourselves. The only way to ever fight injustice in a way that it doesn't become a quest for vengeance is to believe that we are so humbled because we stand before a holy God who has come for us in love to show us mercy in his son. And then, if you believe you're on your own, if you believe you are your own, then you're going to have to find your own form of restraint in the search for justice so that it doesn't become vengeance. If you're on your own, you're going to have to sort of quiet your own conscience in some other way. And that's why we have to believe one last thing. You are not your own because of the way God thinks of you. And it's the most poignant thing you'll hear in the entire passage in Isaiah. When this servant speaks as if it had been abandoned, The servant sings, saying, Can a mother forget her nursing child? The strongest bond that we might know in humanity between a mother and their nursing child, 
That's how God thinks of those for whom he's come. If you've been in exile for about 100 years, you may think God has abandoned you. If you think, if your brother has been murdered in cold blood by an off-duty police officer, you might think God had dropped the ball. But what Isaiah is out to tell us and what Jesus is out to tell us is that you are to me as a child is to a nursing mother. And you are to me as one upon whom I might put my own I might emblazon your own name on my hands. In a a total reversal, in a servant's life, they would emblazon the master's hand on the servant's hands. But in this situation, it's the servant's hands on the master's hand. A tattoo. Indelible. And in this way, you and I are hearing about a servant in that day that would command the respect of all Israel. But we're also hearing a hint of a greater servant the one who came to us and who wept at the outskirts of Jerusalem, saying, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, would that I could gather you as a mother to her hens. But you did not listen. This servant, the one who emblazoned his name on our hands through nail prints, he is the one who is that greater servant of whom Isaiah spoke and sang. If you're in this room and you have lived your whole life thinking that you were on your own, I invite you to repent and to give up and stop running. And if you are in this room and you believe that Jesus is Lord and yet you find yourself running, I encourage you to give up and to believe this is how he thinks of you, what he's done for you, what he wants to do through you, and how he loves you. This is good news. This is why we run. This is why we believe we are not our own. Let's pray. Father, that is an idea that must be planted in us and it must be cultivated in us. Would you do that for us today? In Jesus' name, amen.